Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and I'm here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Susanna, what's shaking? Hey, Joe. Hey, everybody. So, okay, Susanna, let's put your PhD to, to work. I've got a quiz for you. It's one question. What is the fastest growing population group in the U.S.? Mm, it's a hard one, Joe, but it's the elderly. That's the second fastest growing population group in the U.S. The first, of course, fans of you and the podcast. <laughs> I think it's the same group. I think the elderly are also. <laughs> Who else has time, right? Well, actually, if they're like my parents, they wouldn't have time either. But So, um, yeah, yeah. Fastest growing population group is um, folks over the age of 85, especially. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, you can guess. Better treatments certainly play a big part, and so does the decline in tobacco use. With the growth of this population, one thing we know we're going to see is an increase in demand for cancer care because cancer risk increases with age, right? Right. So our guest today is the perfect person to talk with about this. Dr. William Dale is the chair of the Department of Supportive Care Medicine at City of Hope, where he's also the director of the Center for Cancer and Aging. Susanna, as a very, very, very old person yourself, what did you take away from this conversation? <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Um, I, I really loved this conversation with William because he helped me to understand a couple of things. The, the first is one of William's area of expertise is on clinical trial enrollment for elderly cancer patients. And so I've never understood the complexities of why if we have this large population of individuals who have cancer, because as, as we increase in age, our risk for cancer increases. So why if we have this large population of individuals with cancer, do we also have a deficiency in older cancer patients enrolled in clinical trials. So we spend a lot of time talking about the complexities around that issue. And William just did a beautiful job of explaining the reasons, some reasons, and had some really lovely suggestions for how patients and providers um, may overcome the barriers to clinical trial enrollment for the elderly. And then the second piece that we spend a lot of time talking about was around um, supportive care or palliative care. And I love, love, love where he is in this space. Um, he's gonna talk about a film that he and his wife are executive producers on, The Elephant in the Room, which focuses on the sensitive issues around palliative care. It's an absolutely beautiful film. And then he's also gonna share with us some of what they are doing at City of Hope. and. We talked about kind of the three C's. Well, the fourth would be cancer. But in that space, it's in both of these issues around clinical trial enrollment and around supportive care. It's how do you communicate? How do you communicate with cancer patients? How then do you also offer them the community that is necessary in order to to support them? And then how do you coordinate everything that cancer patients and especially elderly cancer patients need. Um, so it's, he just did a lovely job. And he left with a quote that um, I'm going to write on my wall. He says that age is just a number. And when it comes to your health, it really shouldn't be the focus. It's, it's a focus. 
and that we need to advocate for ourselves and for the best um, care um, and for the best coordination of that care and for our communities to rally around us. So um, I think you're going to love hearing from William. Hi, William. How are you doing this morning? Uh, fine, Susanna. Thank you. You have an area of expertise that I think is so interesting and so many Americans are concerned about and interested in, and that is the care of elderly or older cancer patients. So let, let's just get started by level setting. Can you tell us about the unmet needs that exist at what I, when I was thinking about what you do, this intersection of being an older, an older patient and also a cancer patient? Right. So this is the intersection, the kind of demographic intersection that um, is coming. Um, as people are getting older, they're more likely to get a number of things, including cancer. So the most likely person knowing nothing else who has cancer is over the age of 65. And along with that, as people get older, other things come with that too. So other kinds of diseases that people have, other kinds of conditions, um, and the general life changes as people get older start to intersect with how do we get cancer care? Um, and it sets up this dynamic for older patients of trying to balance a cancer treatment and the um, impacts of it on the desire to cure people and treat appropriately. And so for older people, the primary issue is trying to make the right decisions for cancer care when a diagnosis occurs. And the way I often characterize it is we're often under-treating older people by not enrolling them in a trial. Oh, you're too old. Or just, you know, you you probably can't take this kind of treatment and you're um, um, later in your life. And so we will under-treat many older adults on the grounds of ageism. And similarly, we can over-treat people when we want to provide the right standard of care, but it's too toxic for an older patient who has a number of other conditions. And so balancing over-treatment and under-treatment is the way I characterize what we're trying to do for older patients. It's really interesting. While, while you were talking, I was thinking about a seesaw where you would have a elderly or an older patient in the middle trying to balance between all of the things that you listed, which are so true, where you have just life, lots of lots of life changes happening where you may have comorbidity, comorbidities, rather changes that you described as just complications, which just happen as we get old change. And so on one side, you have life and all the things that come with it. And on the other side of this seesaw, you have wanting to provide the, the best possible treatment and balancing the side effects of cancer treatments, the potential to enroll in clinical trials. And so this cancer patient, I just picture them kind of balancing back and forth and having to constantly make really big decisions. So this, this absolutely is a field that is not going away. As you said, it's, it's becoming more and more important and more and more of us are headed in this direction. So thank you for what you do. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm I'm chuckling a little about your um, image of the balancing or the seesaw. Um, we literally um, have just been writing and, and put out a paper on this over-treatment, under-treatment. And the, the graphs are, are the seesaw you're just describing on one axis. 
here's the um, the cancer implications from aggressive treatment to less aggressive treatment. And on the other side are the geriatrics considerations of aging. So what are, how many comorbidities and what other conditions do you have? And how do we make a treatment that maximizes one or the other? And they look just like seesaws trying to balance out those things. So yeah, that's a perfect um, image for people of have that conversation with their doctor when they're trying to make these choices. Yeah, I bet this is a complicated space. And I appreciate that you brought up the issue of clinical trials. This is an, an area where, where you have specific expertise. So maybe we'll, we'll dive into that a bit. Um, you've had some really great publications out recently. You had a CA paper, which is a cancer journal for clinicians, came out in October. And one of the things that you described I thought was really interesting, and it's not something I've spent a ton of time, I must confess, thinking about, and that is a lack of effort to enroll older patients um, who have cancer in clinical trials. And you you alluded to that a second ago by saying that, you know, that it's a form of ageism, which I, I really appreciate now. And but one thing I have to say is it really seems counterintuitive to me because of what you describe, which is that cancer, if we just had to categorize very broadly, our our risk for cancer increases as we get older. And so some people might even describe in some ways cancer as a disease of the elderly just because of the, the prevalence. So we have a, a challenge with enrollment in clinical trials, but an abundance of potential enrollees. So maybe talk to us about the barriers that these senior cancer patients are facing in clinical trial enrollment. Right. No, you hit the, you, you really did hit the nail on the head with the, um, contrast or the um, enigma, um, the paradox of, of cancer for older adults. So over 50% of those with new cancer diagnosis are going to be over 65, it's just the way it turns out. Um, yet when you look at clinical trials, um, and this continues today, less than 25% of those on the trials are over 65. And so what's going on? Like, why are we not just, if we open a trial, getting those older patients who seems like they would enroll? And roughly we divide in, in this uh, article you mentioned, um, led by my um, mentee, Mina Sedrak and I, um, is well, what are the barriers? What's going on? Why are they not getting enrolled? And there's really three levels and I'll go through them very quickly. One is just systematically, we've um, excluded for one reason or another older adults. Um, in the past, distant past, we just would we just say, too old, we won't have you on a trial. Thankfully, that's gone away. But there was implicit um, exclusion based on, oh, do you have another comorbidity? Are you your performance status? You know, are you not functional enough to enroll in a trial? Is your kidney function not good enough? Um, are you having any kind of memory issues? So by putting on a number of restrictions, in the entry criterion, older people were excluded by um, implicit criterion. That's starting to change. The FDA is now changing its rules as are the NIH to say we should make efforts to enroll patients regardless of their um, performance status or frailty level or fitness and design trials better. So that's kind of the systematic. Um, there's also implicit biases still among providers sometimes who just say, oh, this person doesn't look like they would do well, so I won't offer a trial, or I don't think an older person would want to be in a trial. And when we study the issue, older people are just as likely to enroll in a trial if offered, 
and often the biggest barrier is it isn't offered. And I would encourage people who are um, older talking to a provider to bring up the issue and say, hey, would I qualify for a trial? Um, just by bringing it up, the likelihood of getting enrolled will go up. Um, and the third one is patients and families themselves for good reasons may say, I just am not um, up for that. I'm not willing to enroll in a trial or I don't wanna feel like I'm in an experimental setting. And in that case, um, descriptions from us about the safety and talking about trials and encouraging enrollment when appropriate is probably necessary. So all of those things um, partly explain why the enrollment is lower than it probably should be. Oh, interesting. So I, I like that you spelled out for us that there are these kind of three levels to these barriers. And, and the first you said is kind of just life complications. The second is, well, you have to be offered. <laughs> and, and the third is sometimes people just say, no, thanks. This isn't for me. And maybe I'm uncomfortable. And then you mentioned some potential strategies patient could take by saying to their provider, hey, if, is there a clinical trial I'm interested? And on the provider side, you you mentioned that perhaps providing additional details about trials to decrease maybe perceived anxiety. Are, are there other strategies that you have uncovered that you think could decrease these barriers to enrolling um, senior cancer patients in trials? Right. So I'll have to um, start by saying in that article you mentioned the um, the in the Cancer Journal for Clinicians uh, from ACS, um, we go through and try to outline potential strategies, um, but we're honest about the fact that there hasn't been enough research into which strategies will actually work best. So there's a lot of work to be done just to figure that out. But if I was to take my own personal experience and, and reading about this a bit, um, we probably the biggest thing we could do is take trials to our patients. So we often set up our trial network requiring people to come to our centers in specific places um, rather than go to them out in the communities or even these days as we're finding in their homes. And especially in this COVID times, the chance of getting to the big centers becomes even more difficult. So if we could do anything to knock down barriers, it would be design trials that can reach out into the real world settings. You know, the 75% of practices that are in private practice um, or ways to use technology to reach out is probably where the most bang for our buck is gonna be on improving the enrollments. The, the other one is um, probably this awareness that I just described that we need to knock down the sense that older adults are not appropriate and both for patients and families to self-advocate and for providers to start to um, offer trials and even design them so that older patients, especially sicker older patients, can enroll in them. And I will say um, sometimes people say, oh, older people, especially if they're not fit are just difficult to enroll. They have to go through all of the difficulties of being in a trial, coming in all of the time, getting all the all the scans that are necessary. And the truth is we um, have been able to enroll 500, 600, 700 older people in trials, but those trials are designed to help enroll older patients and also bring patient advocates in at the beginning of trial design to help say, hey, this consent form is really intimidating and I can't even see it because it's in tiny prints. 
you know, or this would really make it more interesting to me if you did this. So bringing our patient advocates in is another good strategy to consider. You know, it's it's fascinating to me that often the the best solutions to challenging situations are also the simplest. I mean, it just seems so intuitive that you might want to ask folks what what would make trials more accessible to them. And I, I really appreciate your advocating to ask cancer patients, especially senior patients, if we were able to meet you more on your own terms, would this decrease those three levels of barriers, right? Would that help with these life complications where um, it, what if frailty is an issue? Well, if you didn't have to leave your home, maybe that would help. Or, you know, it would also impact those implicit biases that you mentioned. Um, I want to talk about another area where you have tremendous expertise, and that is palliative care. I feel like still this is a place where we have so many misconceptions. So again, can you just level set with us and share with us what what do you see as maybe a, a challenge that the field faces, perhaps around communication? And also, why are you so excited about palliative care? Where do you see the potential for impact? Right. Yeah, no, palliative care in many ways has made a lot of advancements in in being a term people are comfortable with, something people talk about and that understand. I think the biggest misconception that's still out there is that palliative care is essentially end of life care, often equated with hospice care, rather than as a broader field that it really is. So the first thing I tell people is, palliative care really has two components. One is managing the quality of life, impacting symptoms that people have, things like pain, shortness of breath, um, nausea and vomiting, all the things that make it difficult to continue your cancer care is what palliative care does. Um, and in addition, um, decision-making or what's often called goals of care. Are you a kind of person who really highly values quality of life primarily? Um, or are you the kind of person who wants to live as long as you can because you have, you know, say, people um, and life events that you need to go take care of and um, you want to emphasize that. So figuring out what are your goals and then trying to match your care to that really characterizes the field. I do think there's often a language challenge. So our department, for example, is called the Department of Supportive Care Medicine. And I think that captures the sense of what the field of palliative care is about in a broader sense of providing all the services that support high quality of life. Um, and I will say one other one that's important to keep in mind uh, to pull away from end of life care is um, palliative care or supportive care is best both for survival or longevity and quality of life the earlier it's delivered. So as part of the essentials of cancer care, right when you're making your first commitment to say a chemotherapy regimen or a surgery to have the palliative care or pain doctors there to help manage symptoms right from the get-go has been shown over and over again to lead to better outcomes. No, I love that and I, I love the emphasis this kind of stream of conversation that we've had 
every bit of it goes back to communication, communication with patients, patients having better communication with their care team. And a lot of it seems to be very uh, patient driven, right? So if we allow patients to have and encourage more choices um, and more engagement in their care, the outcomes are are going to be better. Yeah. I, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking it's almost completely communication and coordination. Um, and it brings in the other piece, which is the families are often at least as important. And our field tends to focus on that as well, right? We were talking earlier about, well, going to the patients. Some of their biggest challenges for a trial, for example, is I can't get there. It's mm -hmm. a transportation issue. And those who have families who can help, that bridges it immediately if they don't. It's just it's beyond their ability to get there and, you know, get treatment. So so, yes, communication completely. But there's this coordination element I often uh, emphasize as well. Yeah. And I, I think we could add another C um, and that's community because mm. it very few people we hope and is our goal face cancer alone. Right. They they either have a family unit or they have a support system or they're relying on resources provided like at City of Hope or the American Cancer Society. And so we're facing this as a community. And the more you can involve that community in being proactive in things like transportation to clinical trial, you know, enrollment and engagement, the better off we all are. So uh, hats off to you. What a what a really wonderful program. Thank you. All right. Speaking of, I I didn't know when I started reading about you that I was talking to a, a star. So um, <laughs> now I'm all um, flabbergasted. But I, you and your wife are executive producers of a film called The Elephant in the Room, um, which depicts real life experiences of, of what we've been talking about. And these are real life experiences of Bonnie Freeman. Can you make Maybe just to start talking about the film, can you tell us a little bit about Bonnie? Sure. Yeah, Bo Bonnie, who's the screenwriter for this film, was a nurse practitioner in supportive care. She's a palliative care nurse practitioner who worked in our department of supportive care medicine, who I met three and a half years ago when I came to City of Hope. And her office was right next door to me with the other nurse practitioners. And she was just this wonderful experienced nurse practitioner who led some national programs um, and things like the CARES model for taking care of patients and the providers. So Bonnie in her usual way came to my office. She always had a lot of big ideas, um, visions, um, some of which were good, some of which were a little outlandish and said, uh, you know, we have a screenplay, we want to shoot a movie and we need to shoot it at City of Hope. And uh, she said, can we do that? And I said, absolutely not. Um, we don't shoot movies at City of Hope. It's, it's a hospital body. We, we don't make movies here. Um, and I said, but um, I promise you, I will go ask on your behalf, uh, knowing Bonnie, I'll go ask and say, is there any way for us to have um, some chance or time to shoot a movie? Um, and to my surprise, it came back with a lot of caveats, but said, if you want to do this on weekends, essentially, um, you can do it, but here's all the rules. And I said, Bonnie, here's here's the here's the rules. Um, if you'd like to do it, please do it. And to her, in her usual way, she sort of gathered people together and put into practice her vision of this movie for public to dispel the 
myths that we just talked about, about palliative care and supportive care. Ah, what a great story. I love that, that um, she came to you and you were like, no. And then, um, you know, you, you though, being um, supportive of her, were able to at least ask the question, which so many of us are afraid to do. And she wasn't and you weren't. And, and now we have this really wonderful film. So tell us a little bit about it. I mean, the, the message that came across to me was very much of hope and resilience. And I, I would love for everyone to watch it. I think it's a really wonderful film. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about where it's available and how, but, I'll, but also you, you must have had another reason that you wanted to do this beyond just trying to help a colleague. Um, what do you what do you hope to accomplish for your field by sharing this story with the world? Right. Yeah, thank you for saying those nice things. Um, we, we This became a passion project, um, and it became even more so when just at the end of the filming, of the film shooting, and when we'd signed up our post-production team, uh, when Bonnie completely out of the blue, died suddenly on a trip to visit her family. And so she wasn't able to see the end of the film, mm -hmm. but it, you know, inspired all of us to um, push through to create uh, something we would be proud of and uh, pushed my wife and I to go ahead and invest in the necessary funds to make it happen. That's how we became executive mm -hmm. producers. So then it became a passion project primarily to be an educational vehicle so it was um, a feature film we wanted to make a feature film so that it wasn't um, a, only a documentary but actually told a story um, and then we were planning to use it as you know here's a film clip and here's what we would want to use to teach based on that film clip and as it got further along and as we signed up the um, post-production person who as in many things with this film, people just donated their time. The actors all donated their time. The post-production person who actually has three Emmy Awards said, mm -hmm. I just think this is a great story and I'll do it for cost, which we couldn't afford him at his usual rate, but you know, I'll just do it for my costs because I think it's important. And so what happened was it became a much more um, polished film in the hands of a professional. And when we got done, we're like, wow, we have a nice film here. And then we were really actually shocked, but it became available on Amazon Prime after we'd gone through the festival circuit. So it won mm. a few awards on the festival circuit, made it to the Chelsea Film Festival. And our, our post-production person who'd had experience was like, you know, this is good. This is pretty good. You guys might be able to actually get this done if you keep trying. So we just kept trying. Um, and then when it has come out, what our vision had always been was to show two things. One that end of life care is as much about living at the end of your life, not about mm -hmm. dying at the end of your life. And that it's, a, you know, it's the end of the journey as, as Bonnie would say, but it, it's still part of being alive, not part of dying. And so you see it in the film where there's, you know, there's comedic elements and, and uplifting parts of people, even as they near the end of their life. Um, and then the second piece is really the provider piece. Uh, this is the only film we know of where the palliative care providers, in this case, a nurse practitioner and the social worker um, are the stars of the mm. whole film all the way through and shows the challenges and the emotional um, issues that come up for the providers. And this was based on Bonnie's experience that we've all had of where are those lines? When have you crossed the line with patients because you're so care about them and um, 
how do you balance out the emotional heaviness with the living life and 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 enjoying and and even the comedic parts of it and and I'll I'll say the one of the really heartening things the the person who plays the social worker Rapinder Situ is a social worker in our department and not an not a professional actress um, actor and she was able to bring out these you know emotions she's felt before um, for her patients and that the film I think has that quality of genuineness because so many of the people are are actually from our field like Rapinder and others who are in the film um, and um, the acceptance that this is like the real life for people who are going through this. It's so wonderful that you were able to bring this project not only to fruition in Bonnie's honor, but probably to take it to a place that none of you thought you would. So it, as I was listening to you talk, it to me sounded like, now we all use our iPhone cameras now, but <laughs> when we used to have cameras that we would adjust the focus on, that, that seems to me what you've done is a space that is somewhat blurry for those of us who have not been through a palliative care or end of life care situation with a friend or loved one. It, it helps to shine a light and perhaps put the focus, as you said, on the caregivers not only the family members, but those who are providers of this care, and I think in a really beautiful way. So, I, and if I'm correct, we can all watch this for free on Amazon Prime. Is that yeah, what that's, I'm hearing? Yeah, that's correct. If you just type in the elephant in the room on Amazon Prime, you should be able to find it. It's the There's a couple of similar films, and you'll just see ours is the one with the patient in the wheelchair and uh, um, the nurse practitioner behind them, Nico, pushing him along. So um, yes, please, uh, we'd love for people um, to watch it, to rate it, um, and uh, if you like it, tell your friends about it. And it sounds like something you could use as perhaps a tool when individuals are going through these experiences or are having to um, begin to make decisions in this space, that it could also be very educational for, for all of us. Yeah, yeah, we hope to make it even uh, professional training, but I would say we've been most heartened in the way that my colleagues have seen it and we've tried to make it real realistic, like the medical parts. I don't like medical films personally <laughs> often because I find them unrealistic to the point of um, being frustrating. So we, we try to do that. But the number of um, my colleagues who have seen it and come back and said, oh, this reminded me so much of their own experience and that it was helpful to see it depicted. Um, there's the scene, uh, um, the one where the child is carried out um, mm -hmm. and it rem reminded mm -hmm. my friend, who by the way, that's the son of one of my colleagues in the mm -hmm. department who plays that role. Um, so Finley, Zechariah's son is the, is Shane, is that person. In any event, she, she wrote to me and said, you know, I had a patient who didn't want to um, the family didn't want to have them removed on the gurney. They wanted to do something else. And mm -hmm. we were able to arrange that. And it was so important to everybody. And I was just talking to um, a family member of mine, a patient who passed away in the last week or so. And she said the hospice provider, when they came over after she'd passed, was uh, talking to her mother, even though her mother mm -hmm. was no longer alive. And she was, you know, she was teary eyed and she was saying I was so meant so much to me, even though I 
knew it, that he was treating her like her after her life. And so those those moments um, that touched my colleagues meant meant a lot to me um, that we got it right about how this feels to people in the field. Well, it's a beautiful film and and I love that it is the focus is on living. So um, congratulations. Thank you. So I, I do want to talk to you. The reason that we found you was through collaborations that you've had with some of our colleagues at the American Cancer Society. So could you share a little bit about how the American Cancer Society has impacted your research? Yeah, um, the American Can Cancer Society is one of my um, favorite organizations, if I can say it that way. Um, American Cancer Society supported my research on making decisions for older men with prostate cancer in particular the role emotions like anxiety play in treating prostate cancer often when we over treat prostate cancer um, for people for whom the treatments especially for older patients might be more dangerous than um, something like an active surveillance or watchful waiting approach um, and i was still early in my career um, before i was a well-funded and American Cancer Society in, in Chicago at the time supported this work um, for African-American men on the south side of Chicago. And it made a, had a, had a really a, a, you know, a high leverage impact on where my research ended up going uh, about trying to design interventions to handle the anxiety and depression and other um, mental health concerns um, for patients who have a new cancer diagnosis. So um, that was really formative for me for when I later had more federal awards, it was it was really important. Other, a couple other ways worth mentioning, um, the American Cancer Society has um, always been a clinical partner for me whenever we needed to find additional support for patients that falls through the cracks, whether it was transportation vouchers, whether it was information that uh, patients and families can use. The American Cancer Society has um, been there throughout my career from Chicago to California um, and City of Hope um, to, I could always count on them to do that uh, counseling and provide resources. Um, and then now um, through uh, Corin Leach, who's been an advisor to us as I've moved into more infrastructure concerns, like how do we create infrastructure for trials or how do we take care of people in their homes when they're older? Um, as part of our cancer and aging research group, she's a uh, part of our executive advisory group. Uh, and that has brought us um, such expertise and thoughtfulness, particularly about the community-based care for older patients. So um, I could go on and on about the um, American mm -hmm. Cancer Society, and in particular through our Cancer and Aging Research Group, or CARG, it's just been a decade now of um, interactions and um, helpfulness um, through the um, Cancer and Aging uh, Committee at American Cancer Society. You know, it's really rewarding to hear all those things. I love that we continue to share expertise and that we are a clinical partner. And I guess selfishly, um, I'm just so excited. I have a big smile on my face hearing about the role that the ACS played in your formative years. Um, it's, it's really one of our goals is that we fund the best and the brightest 
researchers early in their careers and hopefully can support them in staying in oncology research. And it sounds like we played a role in that for you. So that's just wonderful. Yeah. Can I, if I could say also, I'm not an oncologist. So um, in many ways, the field is appropriately driven by oncologists, but American Cancer Society has always had this broader view. And so I've always felt um, particularly at home as someone who you know, they, people don't say, oh, well, you're not an oncologist. Mm. The fact that I'm a geriatrician and a palliative care physician or and a health services researcher is like that, that is, it's not even a second thought. It's just, you're just another part of the, the group. And I think America says I just better than anyone else I know to be welcoming to anybody who wants to help who's in the field, whether it's patients, families, or, you know, physical therapist or social worker, whoever wants to contribute. Absolutely. We we certainly understand that it it takes so many hands to do this work. And our, our teams involve, uh, I think interdisciplinary would be probably the weakest word I could use, but it is so true. So we're, we're thrilled you're a part of it. Um, I think we've talked about so many fun things, but I think our audience would like to know if there's something you are particularly really excited about right now when you think about your research. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for asking. I've really, my, my significant focus right now in my two roles, or I'm three in some ways, as the department chair for supportive care medicine that tries to integrate you said interdisciplinary is the wrong word, but you know tries to bring together all the parts of the care team into a integrated whole that provides whole person care to cancer patients. Um, as the director of the Center for Cancer and Aging here at City of Hope, um, we are focused on getting our research team to again create interdisciplinary interventions for older adults with cancer. How do we not just do say a assessment, a geriatric assessment? but apply that in practice and advance the, how do we improve outcomes? So this year at ASCO, we had two studies of four that were randomized trials presented on reducing chemotherapy toxicity and reducing hospitalizations for older adults with cancer. Um, and uh, all four of these randomized trials show that we can reduce chemotherapy toxicity through the use of these geriatric assessments without compromising the survival of patients. And so the focus now is to take this research and apply it. So do implementation style research of how do we take these studies that have been done in academic centers and translate them into the community settings where most of the patients are. So that's where one of my big foci is, is helping create these multidisciplinary interventions based on geriatric assessments. Um, a second um, area is we have a, a large grant called an R33 grant to build infrastructure for cancer and aging research across the country. So we give out some uh, pilot awards and we're creating core infrastructure like a measurement group, an analytics team, we have a communications and dissemination team and a mentoring group so that anybody across the country who is interested in cancer and aging, which has been a 
smaller field and doesn't necessarily have people at all the different locations in the country who says, well, I'm in this place and I want to do this, where do I go? You can come to the Cancer and Aging Research Group. Um, anybody out there who wants to know more, I, I would encourage them to go to the um, mycarg.org website. That's the centerpiece for it. And we're building up a kind of national group that's um, focused just on doing better research for older adults um, who have cancer. You know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head because we've had a great conversation, but it began with your reminding us that if we were just to take a sampling of cancer patients, 50% of them would be seniors. And that, that population is growing. And so we are, by necessity, moving from the observational stage of this research to implementation um, as this population continues to grow and these challenges will continue to grow along with them. And I, I love the fact that you are growing your programs, not only for City of Hope, but also for anyone around the world. I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we have realized we can interact with each other and collaborate uh, virtually in ways that we probably could have done and should have done for a long time. And now we're doing by necessity. So that's fantastic. We'll, we'll need to loop back with you in a couple of years to, to see where you are. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, I will point out too, I know there's a lot of survivors and that that's a focus for American Cancer Society. Um, you know, as you said, over 50% of patients with cancer are over 65, but 70% of survivors are over 65, of course, because many survive and become older, um, but the vast majority of cancer survivors are going to be older. So um, one of our other focuses is how people not just get through their cancer diagnosis and treatment, but how do they live the right kind of high quality life following treatment when hopefully they've been cured. So again, that, that focus that you have on living, how best to live and, and survive cancer. So mm, what a wonderful, what a wonderful way to end. So but before I let you go, um, a lot of our listeners to the podcast are cancer patients or survivors or their caregivers. Is there a message you would like to share specifically with this population? Only that um, never attribute any concerns and problems people have to, oh, I'm just older. That um, I often say age is just a number. And when it comes to your health, to try to think about your being older as um, not the main focus, but that how healthy you are should be the focus. Um, having said that, um, self-advocacy for patients and families. Um, we we find um, providers are more than willing to talk about it, but it doesn't necessarily cross their mind in a busy day when they're trying to make sure all the necessary cancer treatment things are happening. So just asking the question about, will my cognition be affected by this treatment? What will I do with um, my physical self when I'm going through this? Will I lose my ability to walk and what should I do to compensate for it? Can really spur more conversations um, with the physician uh, and, and allow them to sort of enter into your care. And the same thing for palliative care. Don't be afraid to say, you know, I'm concerned about my pain management during care. Do we have a plan for that? 
um, or what will the side effects of this treatment be like? Um, because it's really important to me that I be able to do my um, piano playing. And if I have bad neuropathy, it'll be a problem. So um, just asking the questions in, uh, in the right kind of way can really enhance the care that the, that um, older adults and, and everybody will get. William, that, that brings us back to our C's that you <laughs> mentioned earlier of communication and coordination, and then we added in community. So um, we're awfully glad you're a part of this community and so grateful for all you do. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Yeah, thank you, Susanna. Thanks for letting me tell our stories. All right. Take care, William. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye.